You guys can grab a seat. Um, I'm going to go ahead and ask the uh, pastors and elders to join me up here and then ask David to come on up here as well. Um, so we have a very uh, awesome opportunity this morning. Uh, one of the things that the elders of this church pray for uh, specifically, and one of the visions we had for this church uh, when God called us here to plant it years and years ago is that we would be uh, a light uh for the gospel to the next generation. And, and part of that would mean then seeing the next generation raised up to be the church. I mean, I'm sure for those of you guys that are new, newer, you hear, you know, myself or Pastor Daniel or one of the elders or uh, Pastor Theo say things like, go and be the church. Yes, it's kind of like our sticky tagline at this point, but there's also uh, important value in it because we believe that the church is not a building uh, but it is the people of God. I mean, I think we're proving that this morning and have been proving it for months now as we've gathered outside to worship and proclaim the name of Jesus and to exalt him together and continue to see the gospel go forward, to see people come to Christ during the last several months, to see people be baptized. We've been the church. And so part of what we also want to see in that is seeing you guys uh, encouraged, equipped, and empowered to live out the implications of walking with Jesus for the rest of your life. And some of that also means that we would train up and raise uh, young men who are able to preach and teach and lead. This morning, we're going to hear from David Dominguez. He's been coming to Aletheia for about a year and a half now, two years. Um, he's, his parents are here this morning. I think they're over here somewhere. Love you guys. Uh, David has an awesome spiritual legacy and heritage in his family. His grandfather was a pastor. His father is a pastor. Uh, so he has this really, really just awesome legacy in his family of men and women who love Jesus and want to exalt him. And David's kind of continuing that heritage in his own family. And so so we're going to get the opportunity to hear him preach and teach to us this morning. He's worked super hard on this message, guys. Uh, I've heard it multiple times now. I'm super excited for you to hear it as well. Uh, but I'm going to let Pastor uh, Derek uh, pray for David, and we're going to lay hands on him before he'll bring the word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the the interest, the the gifting that you've given David, most importantly, the, the fire that you've given to him for you, for your word, for your gospel. I pray that you would be with him this morning as he delivers the word. Um, God, may his message rest on our hearts with a, a joyful burden that we would be convicted by the words that he brings. May we be reminded, God, that the, um, the, the power of preaching does not come from the speaker. It comes entirely, 100% from your word from your spirit who has inspired it, from, uh, from its application on our lives. And so God, I pray that as we listen to David today, we would receive that wisdom gladly, that you would speak through him, um, that you would uh, empower him to get through this message, to make the points that you would have him make, and that we would walk away challenged, convicted, encouraged, and joyful that we serve a living and true God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, <clears throat> this is weird hearing myself talk at this time. So if it wasn't clear enough, my name is David. Um, I am one of the deacons here at Aletheia. We found out what a deacon was a couple weeks ago, so that's great. Um, 
just to tell you guys a little bit about me, I love basketball. If it, I know it doesn't look like it because I'm not a very tall guy, but I love basketball. I love playing basketball. I love watching basketball. So something that um, has always stuck in my mind was this, this time that I shared with my uncle. Um, I'm a very big LeBron fan, so if that rubs you the wrong way, I'm really sorry. Um, and in 2013, he was playing for the Miami Heat. There might be some Heat fans here, um, the state of Florida. There we go. Um, and they were playing the San Antonio Spurs, which is my uncle's favorite team. And he graciously invited me over to his house every game because he was expecting them to win. And for game six, uh, he was like, hey, bud, you should totally come over. I'll have snacks. You, let's watch it together. The Spurs were winning the series, and it looked like they were going to win game six. And of course, against my better judgment, I was like, yeah, I'll go. Free food. Why not? Um, so I'm at my uncle's house. We're watching this game. It's not looking great. It's looking great for him. He's enjoying it. He's like, this is great. There's going to be a parade in San Antonio. We should go. I'm like, no, I'm not going to go to Texas just to celebrate with you. Um, things were not looking great. But, you know, I was there. I was, I, was, I was watching the game with him. And with about 15 seconds left, Miami got the ball back. They were down just three points. And I was like, this is it. I need LeBron to make a three-pointer. I need to, you know, celebrate in my uncle's house. This, this just needs to happen. And, of course, with, with my luck, LeBron came, came down, missed an open three-pointer. And I was like, well, this is it. I'm going to have to watch him celebrate for like an hour now. But out of nowhere, the center for Miami jumped over two defenders, grabbed the rebound, found Ray Allen backpedaling. This man was not ready to shoot. He was backpedaling. It's hard enough to run forwards. I found that out. He was running backwards, and he's running backwards to get behind the three-point line because they're down three. The center gets the ball, has the presence of mind to pass it to him as he's still stepping back, gets behind the three-point line, shoots it, makes a three-pointer. Miami goes on to win that game, goes on to win game seven, the second back-to-back -back championship. I was a very happy guy. My uncle was miserable. Um, he was miserable the moment Ray Allen got the ball. And that's because if, if you know who Ray Allen is, that is what he does. He makes three-pointers for a living. Um, and he didn't get there by chance. Uh, Ray Allen devoted a lot of time and effort to get good at his craft. Um, at this point in 2013, I think he was 38. So I know that that's not old for us, but for professional athletes, specifically basketball, it is very old. You start running back and back and forth a few times if you're 38, and you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, and so, what people took away from this series was basically that Ray Allen's shot was just historic and clutch. Um, but when we look back at it, yes, there was some luck, right? Like the ball had to jump the right way, and they had to get the rebound, and he got right behind the three-point line, didn't step out of bounds. There was a lot of factors that, you know, humanly he couldn't control. But what he could control was the effort and preparation and how intentional he was with making sure that he would be ready whenever his team needed him. And so today in this section of scripture, we're going to see Paul use very similar language when encouraging Timothy to pursue and train in godliness. And I think he does this for a reason because we naturally understand the need and importance to be intentional in 
physical endeavors in our lives, but we oftentimes don't apply the same effort or logic when it comes to our spiritual growth. So to give us a quick um, introduction um, into what we've been discussing, I'm going to go over just what we've been covering in the first uh, letter that Paul sent to Timothy. Um, And like I said, uh, this letter, Paul sends it to Timothy, who is like his protege. It's his, his spiritual child, as he, as he calls him. Um, and the point of the letter is found in chapter 3, verse 15, where we're told that he sends him this letter so that we, we might know how we ought to behave in the house of God. And he's covered multiple uh, portions and mo- multiple situations, like how to deal with false teachers, He's gone over his own personal testimony to encourage Timothy. He has gone over the primal importance of prayer and the characteristics and what we should look for in church leadership. Um, And as we saw from Daniel two weeks ago, we have seen that God has called his people to be like him, to be holy, to be godly. Um, And so... In, in a nutshell, we have seen that God cares about how his people gather and participate in corporate worship. And we have also seen that he cares about the character and godliness of not just the leaders of the church, but of every member and individual that is part of the church. Um, and like I said, God calls us to be holy as he is holy. That is not a suggestion. It is a, a call. It is a royal beckoning. The king is asking that of us. This word godly that we're going to see in, in, in this section of scripture is used 15 times in the New Testament. And nine of those 15 times appear here in the first letter to Timothy. Now, whenever we see something repeated over and over in scripture, it's not by chance. It's because it is important. And so... Paul devotes this time to not just explain what godliness is, but also to tell Timothy how we ought to pursue it. And so there'll be one major overarching point to this sermon today, and that is that you can be godly and that God can use you. And then we're going to be going through three major points in the sermon. The first will be that godliness is active. The second is that godliness is and should be fueled by the gospel. And our third point will be that godly character creates moral authority. So we'll go ahead and jump into the first point, and we'll be reading um, in verses 6 through 8. So I'm going to reread those, and then we'll we'll go through it. Verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life that is to come. Now, Paul uses the word train twice in the span of verse 6 and 7. And I want to draw your attention to that because while we translate that in English as train both times, in the Greek, he actually used two different words. And I think that's important because both words give us a more holistic picture of what he means by training. We're going to address the first, uh, the first train 
not like choo-choo train, but like training, um, in, in verse 6. And in verse 6, the word that he uses means to be nourished or fed, as in child-rearing or when, when, when a child must be fed in order to develop correctly. And he tells us what we should be nourishing our godliness with. He says, with the words of faith and good doctrine. He is encouraging Timothy and telling him, Timothy, you should not be worried about spiritual junk food, things that he has said is not benefit for him, things like myths and false doctrines. He has already addressed those. But he tells him that good doctrine is the key to spiritual success because what you believe will determine how you live. As Kevin pointed out a week ago, right doctrine oftentimes leads to right living, most often. Um, And what we believe about God determines how we live. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Good doctrine alone is not what saves you, but you can't be saved without good doctrine. I want that to sink in a little bit. There are core truths that we must hold to and let guide our spiritual lives to ensure that the God we are worshiping is the one true God of the Bible and not merely an idol we have formed for ourselves. And if there's something that is clear in scripture is that our hearts are deceitful and that humankind does not need much encouragement to create idols and replace God with them. How are we to live godly lives if we don't know what godliness looks like, right? I've been throwing this term around a lot in these first few minutes. And the fair question that you might be asking is, all right, Paul, you keep telling us to be godly, but how, how are we to know, what, what does that even look like? God's word needs to be what nourishes our understanding of this concept because the scriptures bear witness of what godliness is like in human form. Namely, Jesus Christ himself. Listen to what Jesus tells us in John 5, 39. He says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. Do you want to know what godliness looks like? Look no further than the person of Jesus Christ, how he loved and sought out the unlovable, how he met the physical and spiritual needs of those he encountered, and how even on the cross, as he was being crucified, he prayed for those who had just crucified him. This is godliness, and that is why Jesus has the authority to demand our training in it, because he is our example. Now let's address the second train in verse seven. So we saw the first one. First train is he's referring to the nourishing, the the importance of of knowing what godliness is like from scripture, from Jesus' life. In in verse seven, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourselves for godliness. Now this word train here is the same Greek word that we derive the word gym from. So that makes a pretty clear connotation. I mean, I don't go to the gym, but I know what it is. Um, And so 
Paul here uses this word because it means to actually carry out, to physically exercise, to put it into practice, right? You can't get fit by just watching people run on TV. I have tried it. Um, it doesn't work. Um, but Paul uses athletic language here because he knows we and Timothy and the people he was writing to will understand it. Um, like we just, we just spoke about Ray Allen, right? He spent thousands of hours preparing to make sure he could um, perform for his team. Um, and most of us uh, here, many of us here are students and we know we have to study in order to get the grades that we want. And if we're professionals, we have to put in time and effort to make sure we excel at our jobs, right? Um, I'm an occupational therapist. Most of you probably don't know what that is, which is great. It means you probably haven't been in the hospital. Um, and whenever I decided this was what I wanted to do, I didn't get to just sit home and say, all right, in six years, I'll get my job as an occupational therapist. I had to apply to schools and I had to get academic training, right? Like concepts that I needed to know and then physical training to be able to know how to handle patients so that one, I would be ready to treat my patients and two, so my patients would trust me. Right? They, they weren't just going to trust me because I said, hey, I want to be an occupational therapist, so you should let me treat you. Um, so it's the, same, it's the same concept here. So Paul is telling Timothy to train in godliness with active pursuit and intentionality. And that's why I, I titled that first point that godliness is active. Um, I don't want the word active there to make us think that it is out of our own power, but it is something that we are called to pursue um, in our lives. And he tells him why we should be pursuing this actively. He says it has eternal value, right? Ray Allen worked really hard. He got a championship ring. He might end up in the hall of fame. I'm sure he got him a lot of money, but what Paul is telling him here in verse, um, eight is that it, that training in godliness holds value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life that is to come. And guys, we, we get this. This is why spiritual disciplines are so important. Things like reading our Bible and praying and worship, fellowship, things like fasting. If you're more interested in those topics, this is a great time to kind of plug the church's podcast, Be the Church podcast, find it on Spotify, um, where they have done a deep dive in many of these uh, topics. And I think it's very helpful if you want to learn more about that. And again, I don't think anybody's walking away from this call and being like, yeah, I, I get that. Like physically, if I want to do something, I have to set my mind to it. I have to um, set goals or, or, or prepare for it. I like to use the example of um, somebody who, let's say you met somebody here at, at Aletheia and you're like, hey man, you know, haven't, haven't met you. What's your name? And they're like, oh, hi, my name is Jim. I'm sorry if your name is Jim. Um, and I moved to Gainesville because I, I want to be a doctor. And you're like, oh, wow, that's awesome, Jim. We're glad to have you here. What, what steps are you taking? Like, what's, what's the next move for you? And he's like, no, that's it. I just moved to Gainesville because I heard there's a hospital here. And that's, you know, eventually I think I'll just become a doctor. And you're like, okay. So you think you're going to, just by living in a town with a hospital, you're going to become a doctor. We'd, we'd probably laugh. Maybe not. We, we might hold it in just to, you know, be nice. But we'd be like, you're... You're not going to be, could you imagine that? You show up to the ER and the guy's like, yeah, I'm going to be your doctor today. Oh, great. Like, where did you get your training? Oh, I've just lived in Gainesville for 17 years. Yeah, I'm going to go to another hospital. That's what you'd probably want to do. But 
But it, be- it, it begs us to ask the question, if we understand this language and we train and plan and prepare to set ourselves up for success in our careers and life, why is it that with spiritual matters, we hesitate to apply the same intentionality? Why do we expect to grow in godliness by merely coming to church as if, it, as if spending time in a garage would make us a car? How many of us have the next five years of our lives and careers planned out, but have no plan to grow in godliness? And I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to myself. I just recently bought a house and you could tell me, hey, David, what are you most excited about the house? What are your first five plans? I could give you a list very quickly. I'm excited about this. I want to change this. I can't wait to set this up. But if you come up to me and say, hey, David, what what are your plans to grow in godliness in the next month or week? I'd be a lot less enthusiastic to give you my list. And I believe there's a reason for this. Many of us shy away from actively training towards godliness because it sounds too similar to legalism. And so Paul addresses that in the very next verse. In verse 10, he says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. He's saying our hope is not in the fact that we're training in godliness. Our hope is in God who has saved us. And in fact, the fact that we can train and pursue godliness is a sign of God's grace and work in our lives. Which leads to the second point is that godliness is fueled by the gospel. Godliness needs to be rooted in the mystery of Christ. We saw this in 1 Timothy 3.16. Jesus' life not only provides the blueprint, that is the example that we ought to follow or what our definition of godliness looks like, but also it makes godliness possible by enabling active obedience in our lives. We're going to go through some scripture that do a great job of balancing these two. We're going to start in 2 Peter 1.3. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His glory and excellence. In Ephesians 2, um, 8 through 10, we are told that By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And lastly, in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, We are told this letter is written to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. You see, our calling to be holy is possible because we have been and are being sanctified by Christ daily. So to differentiate spiritual discipline and godliness from legalism, I want to separate those two points. Legalism says this, if I do X, Y, and Z, then God will accept me. 
It is what we do ourselves to try to gain our righteousness or even repay God in some way. This does not work. In fact, in Galatians, we're told that it is a curse. In Galatians 3.10, it says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. But instead, what godliness offers us is it, it tells us, I will do this, X, Y, and Z. I will pursue godliness. I will be like Christ because God has already accepted me and shown me his grace. It is what we practice in response to the outpouring of God's love and grace in our lives. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, what did he do in response to God's grace in his life? I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This is, this is personal. This is, this is for you. This is for me. Godliness must be an active obedience that arises from our awe and amazement of God's grace in our own lives. Very similar to the reaction of, of the prophet Isaiah when he is confronted with God's majesty where he says, here I am, send me. Timothy Keller puts it this way. He says, the basic motive is that God sent his son to save us by grace and adopt us into his family. So now because of that grace in our gratitude, we want to resemble our father. We want the family resemblance and we want to look like our savior. We want to please our father. And he clarifies a little bit more and says, how can you come to grips with someone who has given himself utterly for you without you giving yourself utterly for him? And you might ask, why is this so, why is this so crucial that we seek after godliness intentionally, that we train both in doctrine, knowing, knowing what godliness looks like, but in our own day-to-day -day practical lives as well. Because you can be godly. This isn't some far-off concept that we'll never be able to pursue or uh, train in. And God wants to use you to impact others regardless of your age, or title. So in verse 12, let's read verse 12, well, 11 and 12. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. We're going to see in these verses that godly character is what should create moral authority for us. Verse 12 gets tossed around a lot by young people to tell older people that they should not look down on them or by older people to encourage young people. But oftentimes we only like to throw around the first part of the verse, right? We like that. Let no one despise you for your youth. Yeah, mom and dad, take that. Don't despise me just because I'm young. But we leave out blatantly the second half, which Paul tells him how he ought to live in order for people to not be able to despise him. He says, the way to not let people despise you for your youth is to set the believers an example. 
And he gives them this list. And we've seen Paul do this before to Timothy. This is not an exhaustive list. This is not uh, everything you need to do, like Crash Course 101. This is just a general list of, of uh, concepts of godliness. And he says, this is how you, are, you ought to set an example uh, through a godly life. He says, in your speech, right? The, it's important what we say and um, that, that we are grounded in truth and in scripture. And right after that, he says, with your conduct, right? Because most of the time we tend to get one of these two well. Like we're like, okay, I got the, the concept. I know how I'm supposed to treat people. I know what Christ was like. But then we leave the conduct straight out of there, right? And what he's saying is people are not just going to hear your words. They're going to see your actions. He says your actions should be grounded in love, faith, and purity. To sum it all up, godly character is more important than age. I am up here today, and I'm not asking you to listen to what I am saying because I am older than you. I'm probably not older than everybody here. And even if I was, that shouldn't be what makes you listen to, to words from the pulpit or from people in your lives. It should be what their, what their character is telling you. The, their authority needs to come from godly lives and the authority that comes from scripture. If anything that I say up here does not line up with scripture, you can throw it out. I'll be the first one to tell you that. Ultimately, godly character is what wins over those who would naturally look down on one's youth. The word, uh, Pat, Patrick Triner says it like this. He says, the word of God, not experience or embodying a certain station, qualifies someone to speak into a situation. Timothy and Titus are both told to address older women, older men, and younger women, and they have existed in none of these positions. Whenever I was talking through this sermon with Kevin, which he's right, he's probably heard all these points multiple times. So I'm thankful that you're still sitting here and listening to me. Um, he shared this story with me where he was in a men's group and they had you know, broken up into, into prayer groups and he was with this younger guy. And so he was sharing one of his prayer requests and it was about a communication, interpersonal relationship with his son. He was like, I'm trying to convey this point, but I'm not just, I'm just not getting the right point across. You know, I, I pray that God kind of clarifies that, gives me a good opportunity. The young guy was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I will absolutely pray for that. And then he went on to give Kevin some advice. And Kevin was like, his initial reaction was, wait a minute, this guy's like 19, doesn't have kids, doesn't even have a girlfriend. Um, why is he giving me advice about how to interact with my son. But the Holy Spirit started working in Kevin's heart, which is awesome. And he was like, wait a minute, I know this guy loves the Lord, is a godly young man, and actually has a very good reputation when it comes to interpersonal relationships. So why am I taking his advice or counsel as not coming straight from God if, if, if it lines up with what scripture is telling me? And I, and I share this story to point out that God can use you regardless your age. I know oftentimes we might feel like we're inadequate based on just where we are in lives or, or, or our age. 
whether it's because we might feel like, oh, they won't listen to me because I'm older than them and I'm not in that stage anymore or because, oh, they, they, I haven't gone through that. So they're not going to listen to my godly counsel. And to that, I have, I have a, this is a scenario, right? This is not real. But if an older man from church comes up to you, whether you're a younger guy or a younger girl, and tells you, hey, man or girl, I've, <laughs> yeah, almost, almost got myself in trouble there. Um, I've been, I've been wondering if I should go and cheat on my wife next weekend. You know what you young people should not do? Oh, that is a great question. Let me, let me lead you over to one of the elders that's closer to your age and in the same situation so that they can give you advice. No, you can right there tell them that they should not be doing that because of what God has established in his word and that his, his, his word is very clear about what he thinks about marriage, what he thinks about uh, the commitment of marriage and how he ought to treat his wife. And the authority is not coming from you as a younger man or a younger girl into his life. This is what God says. If he's upset with it, if he doesn't like what you're saying, his quarrel is with God and his word and not with you. While you might be the messenger, this is what God is telling that person. But it's up to us individually to not shy away from being God's vessel and messenger when he puts us in those situations. It's a lot easier to just say, oh yeah, there's, there's Kevin, that's a pastor of the church, go ahead and go talk to him. But he's one person. We have to be willing to be ready to, to be used by God in those situations. And I want us to think about this practically as a church. We're generally a pretty young congregation. Most of us, most of us here are young. We're not this old established church that's been here for 250 years and has their building where their great, 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 great granddaddy also went to church. We don't have the largest gathering or the largest budget. But what God is calling us in this passage is to be a godly group of believers that rightly represents the character of Jesus to our neighbors with our speech, conduct, and love. When people come to Aletheia and leave, not through these doors because there's no doors, um, but leave back to their cars, what they should be thinking is not, wow, the donuts were great, which they were, um, or wow, I love that song. Uh, because of the the tune, which is fantastic. I mean, our band is awesome. I love them. Um, but what they should be thinking is, wow, the people there correctly reflect the character of Christ, and and that's so important because like that they have we have something to strive towards when we look at the believers around us. But we also have believers that are walking in the same path with us. So. Paul is encouraging us today, as he encouraged Timothy to be bold, instruct, counsel, and lead others to Christ and godliness with authority that is provided not by our age, not by our congregation size, not by our intelligence, nor the amount of degrees that we have, but by our godliness. But Paul goes on to tell Timothy that this race is a marathon and not a sprint. So he calls him to be diligent in this training for godliness. 
Godliness is not a one day a week from 9.30 to 11 event that we go to. Godliness is a day-to-day, and I would say moment-to-moment journey, which, which he calls Timothy to practice these things right here in, in the following verse, which is just echoing this idea of training in godliness from earlier. And he tells him, immerse yourselves in them. Why? So that all may see your progress. Why is it important that other people see our progress, that other people see our lives? It is so that our Father might be glorified. And Paul knows that this diligence will pay off. In the second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he tells him this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Guys, we are part of those who have loved his appearing. Is it going to be hard? Is it difficult? Yes. He wouldn't call you to be diligent if it wasn't. But what he's saying is that it is worth it. For, for what is to come. And, and Paul wraps this all up by giving him some advice of how to effectively persevere and be diligent in godliness. He tells him, examine yourself regularly. This is how we avoid becoming false teachers. We saw that. We saw that a week ago. And this calling applies to us today. I want you to think to yourself, what am I like? Am I consistent? Is, is what I think a, a godly Christian should be like? Is that consistent with my life? This is why corporate worship is so important. Because oftentimes we need other believers around us to see areas in our lives that are lacking that we might not see ourselves. I found this out real quick when I got married. I did not know that I had a problem with closing kitchen cabinets, but apparently I cannot, I'm like allergic to leaving the kitchen without at least having one cabinet door open. And I would have never, I would have never found out this was a problem. Apparently my parents were a lot, uh, a lot nicer than I thought. But very quickly, as soon as, as soon as me and my wife moved in, she was like, hey, do you, very graciously, very graciously. Hey, do you notice that you leave the cabinet doors open every time you leave the kitchen? And I was like, you know what? Now that you actually ask, I don't. I, I haven't noticed that that's an issue. She's like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to need to clean that up, bud. And I was like, okay, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. I'm not going to argue with her. This is, not, this is not a good hill to die on. So I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember to, to close. And again, she was gracious in, in the fact that she was pointing out where I was lacking, but was also understanding that, is this the last time David's going to leave a cabinet door open? Probably not. If, if I go to your house, I'll probably also leave a cabinet door open. Just be gracious and tell me, David, go close it, and I will go close it. I've learned that part. Um, and again, while it's important, the corporate gathering here, 
the 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 corporate worship that we get in small groups is also of of crucial importance in this area. Those are the times where you're going to get to be most vulnerable, where people are really going to get to know you, who you are, not who you portray to be or or who you want to be, but who you are. And that is again very important because from other believers we should one be encouraged whenever we see godly character. We should also be willing to speak life and counsel into one another's life. But it's also important because we're not called to do this alone. Jesus has promised to be with us and a way that he is with us is through his church. So I'm gonna go over those main three three things that I want. If, if, if you were on your phone the whole time and, and this is the only three things that you get, if I want aliens to, to drop in and hear three things, this is, this is what I would tell them. <laughs> that godliness is active and that we're called to be intentional in our pursuit of it. That this pursuit of godliness must be done in the light of the gospel, which is, that, which is what frees us to live a godly life. And that by doing this, no one will be able to despise you for your youth and God will be glorified. In one sentence, you can be godly and God can use you. And to to wrap this all up, as we get ready to worship together, um, to worship God for his amazing grace in our lives, I I want to close this sermon with a call to meditate on, on the words of our next song. The same way we said that God's word is what guides our definition of godliness, it is his word that should guide our worship. And we're lucky to have leaders at this church that value that and choose songs that are saturated with biblical truth. And today we'll be singing a new song titled, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. And though my microphone will be off, you guys can praise God for that. Uh, when we start singing, I wanted to go over a few lines from the song because I believe they do a great job of mirroring and putting into song and praise much of what we have seen in scripture today. I hope this helps us be mindful while we worship. This song does a beautiful job of balancing our pursuit of godliness while at the same time acknowledging the miracle of God's grace in our lives, which enables that pursuit. It goes like this. It says, with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. This is what godliness is like, guys and girls. Jesus has to be our example for godliness and something that we strive after daily and actively. And then it says, for he has said that he will bring me home. Our, our, our striving towards godliness is only possible because we know that, that Christ has not, only, has not only asked us to follow him, but has made that possible and has promised that he will be the one that brings us to him. And day by day, I know he will renew me. And it, it culminates in, this, in the chorus, which is the only response that we can have when we're confronted with God's grace in our lives and the fact that through his sacrifice, 
We are not only forgiven of our sins, but are being made new daily, and we praise him singing. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's uh, sing together. Ready. So we're actually going to stand in worship uh, for this song, and then afterwards we'll enter into communion. Um, but as David said, pay close attention to the words. Let it meditate in your heart and your spirit. The song is yet not I, but through Christ in me. It has been paid for Jesus' blood and suffered for my pardon. Amen. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. And oh, the chains are released, I can sing, I am free, yes, not I, but through Christ in me. Last verse. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home, and day by day, 
I know that he'll renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, and all the glory evermore to Him, and only Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me.